As we approach Easter, today uh, we are starting um, a journey through several psalms that point our attention to Jesus, particularly those psalms that are being quoted uh, in the Easter events of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, so today we are starting perhaps the shortest series that we've done here, um, the Psalms of Easter. We'll be looking today at Psalm 2. Uh, in two weeks from today, we'll be looking at Psalm 22. And then on Easter Sunday, Lord willing, um, we will be looking at Psalm 16, uh, the Psalms of Easter. I encourage you to open God's Word this morning to Psalm 2. Here's God's word for us as we embark in the study of the Psalms. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in your way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Would you join me in asking God to bless his word and our hearts as we hear? Let's pray. Gracious Father, speak to us, we pray, through this word, through the proclamation of this message. Father, we pray that Christ would be exalted in our hearts, and our hearts would be drawn to respond to the name of Jesus. We pray all this, Father, through the power and presence of your Holy Spirit among us. Amen. Psalm 2 is part of the introduction to the book of Psalms. Uh, Bible teachers are convinced that actually Psalm 1 and 2 belong together as the introduction to the entire book of hymns of the Jewish Israel's uh, book of 
of hymns and songs and worship. And uh, there's some merit to seeing these two psalms, Psalm 1 and 2 together. Psalm 1 begins with a blessing. Psalm 2 ends with a blessing. In Psalm 1, the righteous man meditates on God's Word, and that same word, meditate, is used again, although with a different English word, in Psalm 2, when the kings of the earth also, quote, meditate or plot together. In the Hebrew, it's the same word. But their purpose of meditating is to overthrow God and his anointed. In the Hebrew language, the activity between what's going on in chapter 1 and chapter 2 is really the same. One meditates on the word of God, the other meditate on how to overthrow God. In, verse, in Psalm 1, we see what happens to the one who meditates on God's word. He's like a tree planted by the rivers, by waters. He prospers in all that he does. In Psalm 2, we see what happens to those who meditate on how to keep God out of their lives. Psalm 2 is an invitation to stop trying to keep God out of our lives, but to embrace his king. So the message of Psalm 2 would be summarized in this way. Don't join the world's rebellion, but respond to God's king. Don't join the world's rebellion, but respond to God's king. And I pray that this message this morning would ring true in our hearts. Why? Why should we not join in the, in the world's rebellion but respond to God's king? Well, this psalm has uh, four stanzas. Stanzas in the Hebrew poetry are like verses in a poem or verses in a song. These four stanzas provide four images which inform and provide four points for the message this morning, why we should not join the world's rebellion but respond to God's King. Uh, let's look at each of these four moments, four images. The first one is the world's rebellion. The world's rebellion. Uh, we see this first stanza in verses 1, 2, and 3. The psalmist starts with the words, with a question, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The rage of the nations in this psalm is not the rage of nations against each other. This is a picture of the nations being united together. This is a picture of a world that is not at war with each other. Can you imagine such a world? These days, it's hard to imagine that. 
uh, in, in just in the last decades, seeing such conflict among nations of the earth. And yet this psalm paints together here a picture of the nations being united together. Uh, you might think, how safe of a place that would be when the nations would all be united together. Oh, but friends, in this psalm, the unity of the nations is centered on their rebellion against God. And we find out that the unity of the nations in this purpose would end up not being a very safe world and a safe place at all. Just because the world is united does not mean it is safe. The world can be united around a wrong purpose. And that is what we see in this particular psalm. Notice the agenda of, their, of the unity of the nations. Uh, to plot against the Lord and His anointed. In the Hebrew language, the word for anointed is uh, Messiah. Uh, it's, it's a word that Jesus would end up taking as one of His titles, one of His names. At the time the psalm was written, it envisioned King David at first. But clearly the psalm is not written only about David. It was written about Jesus. How do we know that? Well, because in Acts 4, the passage that our brother Daniel read earlier in the service, the, the early Christians prayed to God and applied the words of Psalm uh, Two in their prayer that they were they prayed to the Lord in the midst of their persecution, in the midst of facing threats from the authorities. After John and Peter were released from prison, the Christians in Acts four prayed to the Lord and they quoted Scripture, and they prayed the verses of Psalm two. And this is what they said, O sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, in other words, they knew that this psalm was written about David, your servant said by the Spirit. So the words of David in Psalm 2 were spoken by the Holy Spirit. And they said, why did the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. That's a quote from Psalm 2. And then they keep in their prayer, here's what they say. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pilate, Pont Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, in other words, the Christians in Acts 4 use the quote from Psalm 2 and are saying that those, that quote is applied to Jesus. Oh, friends, the plotting of the crucifixion of Jesus was the fulfillment of Psalm 2. But the fulfillment of Psalm 2 doesn't end with the plot against Jesus because the Christians we're applying that in their context of continued persecution. Just because these words were fulfilled in Jesus and in the hatred of the world against Christ does not mean that these words are no longer relevant for Christians today. The world continues to manifest its opposition against God and against His King. 
the Christians in Acts 4 felt that through their ongoing persecution. And friends, today we see the nations of the earth, the rulers, the judges of the earth, continue to express opposition against the Lord and against his anointed. You say, how so? Well, look at verse 3. There's a clue in verse 3. Here's what they say. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Notice how the rebellion of the world considers God and his anointed to be oppressive and his authority to be as bonds or as chains that need to be cast off. Friends, this is the corrupt effect that sin brings us. We see the loving authority of God over us, over the universe, as oppressive, as cords that bind us, as something that is to be cast off as chains. Well, friends, the notion that we are given our identity and our gender by our maker is viewed in our society as increasingly oppressive and unjust. In the Western world, God's moral standards are being described in increasing oppressive ways, as if it's an ideology we must get rid of in our society. Just this week, if, if you've watched the news and uh, observed what's happening um, on the U.S. side, not just in Eastern Europe, uh, the nominee to the Supreme Court, Ms. Jackson, was asked during the hearing uh, this week if she could provide a definition of the word woman. To which the answer she gave was, no, I can't. I'm not a biologist. Friends, if a Supreme Court judge nominee at the Supreme Court of the United States of, of, of America needs to be a biologist in order to be able to define the word woman. We are looking at a very stormy future. And we should not be surprised in, if in years and decades to come we will find ourselves living in a world in which the rulers and the judges of the nations of the world will continue to advance and increase their aggression against God and his son Jesus and their standards of, of life and will find their ways oppressive. Friends, we should not be surprised if God's people will be labeled in the future as oppressive. If the nations of the world, if the leaders of the nations are finding God as oppressive, as being somehow like 
chains that need to be cast off. Be assured of this, that those who belong to God and follow him will be put in the same camp. You think that the language of and the threats of oppression against God uh, is new, just new to the sexual revolution of our modern day? Friends, it started as early as Psalm 2. The psalmist was not surprised, nor should we. The, the words of, of the kings of Psalm 2 are extremely, extremely relevant for us today. They give an illustration of how those who rebel against God will portray God and his son Jesus. And we will fit in the same camp. But the rebellion of the nations and their kings in this, in this first expose, in this first description, the, the psalmist tells us from the very beginning, is in vain. The psalmist starts this question not because he was confused, but he, because he was astonished. He was astonished, not simply because the nations rage and, and, and rise up against God and his anointed, but because they do so in vain. The psalmist wants us to know from the very start that no matter how united the nations will be, no matter how well they work together in their plot against God and his anointed, their attempted plots are in vain. Well, friends, if Pilate and the Jewish leaders were able to be successful in their plots against Jesus, and if they were able to execute Jesus and to crucify him and to put him to death, they were not able to keep him dead. Death itself was not able to hold on to Jesus in its chains. Friends, so consider how Psalm, the psalmist portrays the rebellion against God in vain. Friends, if you are not reconciled with God today, or if somehow you are in a situation in which you are tempted to continue to fight against God and His ways, Consider this caution. Continuing to oppose God will turn out in the end to be in vain. You will gain nothing by your opposition to God. Here's the first picture of the rebellion of the world. It is in vain. Hearing of the plans of the rebellion of the nations of the kings plan against the Lord may cause our hearts uh, to be disturbed, to be fearful for the future. But notice God's reaction. How does God react when he finds out of the plot of the nations? Notice, and we see image number two, or point number two in the message, God's reaction. We see this in verse four through six. First, God's reaction is to laugh. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Oh, friends, this is not the only time that God laughs in the Bible. Uh, he shows up laughing in Psalm 37 and also in Psalm 59. 
But in these instances when God is laughing, it's always a laughter against the wicked, against the rebellious nations. The laughter of God at our rebellion is not to minimize the rebellion. It's not to take lightly the rebellion. God's laughter is simply to show us how unthreatened God feels about our plots against him. God's laughter is a laughter to show how unthreatened he feels when he hears that the nations of the world, the rulers of the world, plot against him. But the laughter of God is also described as a derision. Uh, this is a laughter of mockery. God, in his laughter, is mocking the rebellious because he knows that their ways will not hold on forever. Friends, if you are a Christian, hearing that the laughter of God is a laughter of derision should give us hope. Yes, we're grieved by the way our society is rebelling against God, but God is not panicked about that, and nor should we. But God's second reaction is not only laughter, but also to introduce his king. The introduction of God's king comes not with laughter, but with fury. Look at verse 5 and 6. Then God will say, will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now, why would the presentation of God's king be the appropriate response to the rebellion of the world? Why would God respond to the kings who say, let's plot together against the Lord and his anointed? Why would God's response would be first laughter, but then in fury presenting the announcement that God has installed his king? I love how one Bible teacher put it nicely. It's as if God is saying to the, to the kings of the earth, you may conspire and rebel. But I, you see, have already decided who shall finally rule in your world. I've already decreed who will be the king of kings and lord of lords. Now, does it surprise to you? Uh, does it surprise you to, to hear that God's announcement of this king comes in wrathful speech? The wrathful speech of God here shows us the severity of their rebellion. If God's laughter shows how unthreatened he feels about their plans, his wrathful speech at this moment shows how dangerous their views are if they continue to stay in their path of rebellion against a king God has installed. Friends, the introduction of God's king here comes in the most severe tone. It's severe and wrathful. To awaken those who slumber in their rebellion against God and feel secure and comfortable in it. Friends, rebellion against God or simply trying to keep God out of your life is not to be toyed with lightly. 
This is God's reaction to the world's rebellion. The mocking laughter, the wrathful announcement of God's installed king. But in the third stanza, we see another image. We have seen the world's rebellion. We have seen God's reaction to the world's rebellion. But in the third stanza of the psalm, we see a change of of speakers. This time, the king speaks. The king that God has installed speaks. So we see God's king. God's king. Look at verses 7 through 9. I will tell of the decree. What decree? The Lord said to me, You're my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This is the decree God has made known or has spoken not to the kings of the earth but to his king and this is a testimony of the king that God has installed and has received from the father from God this announcement this declaration of his identity and his authority what he will be and what he will do and the king tells us in this third stanza what his mission will be. First, this king is God's son. Verse 7, the Lord said to me, and the psalmist says, the words of God to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now, there are several layers of meaning to this phrase, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Uh, First, when David wrote this psalm, David being the first recipient of, of these words, God promised that David and his descendants on the throne will be God's sons as kings. Now, it's not the first time in Israel's history when God declares that his people are his son. God did that in Exodus chapter 3 when God called the entire nation of Israel. My son. In Hosea, God said, Out of Egypt, I called my son, referring to the whole nation as God's son. But now, to call the newly installed king my son was a way of saying that the king God installs will represent the whole people of God. The king will act on behalf of God's people. That's why not only David is going to be described as God's son, as as my son, but we'll see Solomon and the promise to the Davidic descendants on the throne will be described as my son. The installment of Israel's human kings, the, the enthronement on the throne were the moment when God would make that king to be his son, a representative of God's people. So what God will do to the king will happen on behalf of the nation. And what, God, what the king will do will be on, the, be on behalf of the nation. The first picture of this representation between the king and the people 
is given in this picture. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. This is significant because the king will act on behalf of God's people in ways that will be significantly more powerful than David could ever realize when he wrote the psalm. These words, you're my son, the day I have begotten you, were not limited to David. We're not limited to Solomon. We're not limited just to Davidic kings. Someone would come on, on the throne of David who would fulfill the words of the psalm in surprising ways, in escalating ways. These words from Psalm 2 are quoted by the author of Hebrews when he explains, when the author of Hebrews explains the superiority of Jesus Christ to be higher than angels. And as we heard in the call to worship earlier in the service, in Hebrews 1.5, the author of Hebrews says, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. This verse tells us that Psalm 2.7 was a prophetic psalm pointing forward, not merely to a human king, uh, like David, but pointing forward to Jesus Christ himself. But this raises a question, a problem. Wait, if, if Jesus is the Son of God, how can it be said of Jesus, today I have begotten you? Jesus is the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, who is eternally existing with the Father. In what sense can we speak still of Jesus as being, today I have begotten you? Well, it's in the sense of enthronement. Jesus, after being crucified, after being killed, and after being buried, he resurrected. And the words of the resurrection of Jesus are quoted in Acts 13. And the resurrection of Jesus is described in Acts 13, quoting Psalm 2-7. The very words, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Listen to the preaching, to the sermon in Acts 13. And we bring to you good news, that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. In the preaching of Acts, the apostles find the resurrection of Jesus to be the moment in which Jesus is raised to the throne of God and described as an act of enthronement and therefore as the act of being begotten as a son of God. So the language, you are my son, today I have begotten you, refers not to Jesus' eternal existence or lack of eternal existence as a son of God, but rather as to his enthronement. In the resurrection, Jesus Christ is raised up to the throne of God, and therefore God has installed him as the king who now is representative of the people of God. God's king is not only his son, but also receives as inheritance the nations. Psalm 8, Psalm 2, verse 8. 
we hear more of what the Father, God, decrees to the Son, to the King. God says to the Son, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Who has ownership over the nations? The nations are not sovereign. The nations are not sovereign. I understand this is why nations today fight with one another. To take their sovereignty from each other. But there's a sense in which no nation of the earth is fully sovereign on its own. Because the ultimate owner of all the nations of the earth is God, our maker. And we are told here that we, um, that we see that God the Father tells his son, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance. Friends, this is why we do missions. Because God's authority over all creation is stronger than the rebellion of mankind. This is why we go to, to the nations of the earth. This is why we, we encourage and we will support Amy to go to Southeast Asia because the nations of Southeast Asia belong to God the Father. And he wants to give the people of that nation to the Son, Jesus Christ. This is not just a promise. This is an invitation. It's an invitation to prayer. Did you notice how this promise was introduced? The Father tells the Son, Ask of me. Here the Father is telling Jesus, Ask. Ask and I will give it to you. I love how Spurgeon uh, commented on this verse, said, Prayer is so essential to the progress of the kingdom of Christ that even Christ himself must ask. But then God has promised to give to Christ the heathen for his inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth to be his possession. This is the great strength of all missionary enterprise. Friends, if Jesus was invited to ask the Father for the nations, in the name of Jesus, we can ask God to give to the Son what he has promised. So when we pray for the nations, when we pray for missions, when we pray that God would work in the hearts of our neighbors who are trying to reach out and, and evangelize, we are joining in this invitation that God has made to his son Jesus to ask. And we should pray in the name of Jesus. And we should pray with the confidence that the hope and the success of missions and of the gospel is always not the result of our efforts, but it's always the result of God answering the prayer that he's invited us to have before him. Our friends, what happens when the people and nations will not respond to King Jesus? What happens if they continue in their rebellious ways forever? Look at verse 9. The, the promise that God gives to his king is not only a promise about his identity as the son, is not only a promise of inheritance and an invitation to pray, 
But it's also a warning of what the king will do to the kings of the earth, to the nations who will stay and continue in their rebellion. Verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This is not, this is not a serene, idyllic picture. I haven't seen a Thomas Kincaid picture of this painting, this kind of inspiring, beautiful picture. You just want to hang on in your living room to uh, be reminded of the future that God has with the world. This is a picture of destruction. This is a picture of utter breaking of all rebellion, of all those who will continue to rebel against God's king. In other words, God's installed king is now uttering a peace treaty with all those who are rebelling against him. He is calling them now to seize fire. But this invitation for a peace treaty now will not last forever. It has an expiration date. And at that time, God's king will shatter and will break down all those who remain in rebellion against him. And the picture of that breaking is the picture of a king with an, with an iron rod breaking pottery. No chance of pottery standing against an iron rod. Oh, friends, the purpose of this picture is to tell us that no one should be surprised of the future day and no one should be confident that they will withstand that day if they continue to remain on the wrong side of the king that God has installed. How easy it is for kings and rulers to think that their nations, their military power, are able to resist the God who installed his king. But here we see this warning. No king, no nation, no military of the earth will be able to withstand the conquering king Jesus in the final day. Friends, having nukes will not deter King Jesus to break the nations of the earth. It's not going to be about who's got the most military power, who's got the most savvy strategy to resist. The amazing part is that Jesus himself attributes the words of this psalm to himself several times in the New Testament. Let me just give you one of them. Revelation 2, 26 and 27. It's part of the letter to one of the churches in the book of Revelation. Jesus speaks and encourages his followers to remain faithful to him to the very end. And in this particular letter, it was not the threat of, of persecution. It was the threat of, of corruption, of the threat of compromise, the threat of of joining the world in its compromise against King Jesus. And Jesus gives this promise, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. Do you hear the image of Psalm 2? Verse 9, 
Jesus says that image that was given in Psalm 2.9 was actually the Father giving me authority over the nations. And, God, and Jesus says, I will give that authority to all those who follow me to the end. All those who keep my word to the end. In this stanza, God reveals to us what his king will be and do. There's no betting here on which king will prevail in the clash of kingdoms. In the clash of kings we see in Psalm 2. So in light of what God has decreed that his installed king will be and do, how should we respond? How should we respond? This is what we see in the last stanza, verses 10 through 12. This entire psalm so far has been about Jesus. But this last stanza is about you and I. Listen to how the psalmist invites us to respond. The invitation starts in verse 10. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Now, you might say, Pastor, uh, we're not the audience of this psalm. It says it's kings and rulers of the earth. Well, why is this invitation addressed to them and not to everybody, you might say? Well, here's why, I think. Because in this psalm, the ones who were plotting against God in verses 1, 2, and 3 were the kings of the earth. And here we see the amazing grace of God that those who have plotted against him and have sought to keep, keep God out of their lives are now invited to turn away and respond properly to God. Oh, friends, this is the amazing grace of God, that the very ones who were indicted for plotting against God are now invited to turn back to him, to change their course. Imagine Pilate hearing those words. Imagine the Jewish leaders hearing those words. But the reality is you and I, in various ways, have also, in our lives, at one point or another, have plotted against God and he's anointed. We have said in different ways in our own lives, we don't want God in our lives. We don't want his laws. We don't want his word. It feels like, like shackles. It feels like chains. Why would I want to be bound to him? Why would I want to feel like oppressed under his ways? I want freedom. And each of us in various ways feel the lure of wanting to cast off the, quote, oppressive ways of the Lord. And the Lord speaks to all those who in, in their kingly attitude, in their royal self-throne, self-reigning lives, want to say, I want to hold on to my throne. I want to hold on to the reign. This psalm invites you and I just as much as it invites the kings of this psalm. What is the proper response? What is the proper response? We see three verbs given to us in verses 11 and 12. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. Now, remember, the psalm addresses first, the first audience, the kings, the kings who plotted against the Lord. They're the ones 
who usually are served by people. Kings have servants. The entire nation serves kings. But now God is asking the kings to serve another king. Oh, friends, this is a call of the gospel to ask you and I to step down from being the king of your life and begin serving another king, King Jesus. The call to serve the Lord is not merely to, to do good works for God. The call to serve refers to worship, to give our lives in the service of a higher authority, of a higher supreme king. The call to serve is qualified as serving with fear or serving with reverence. The service of God should not be done flippantly. There should be a sober-mindedness. For kings to serve the Lord with fear means something like saying, don't play politics with God. Don't just do it for the facade. Don't just do it to manipulate. Serve the Lord with fear because He is the only true God. But the worship of God should not be a, a begrudging or a boring or a, a frightening experience. The worship of God, the second, the second description is with rejoicing. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice. Rejoice is a second verb. The service or the worship of God should be a glad experience, a, a rejoicing experience. Yes, part of our worship is to mourn for sin, to lament when we see the brokenness of the world around us, when we see the, the effects of the curse of sin. But the worship of God, even when we do see the brokenness of the world, a worship of God should be with rejoicing. But notice, notice that the rejoicing is tempered by trembling. This is an odd call. Rejoice with trembling. What a strange combination. I love how John Piper explains this, what looks like polar opposite experiences. Uh, Piper's Christian hedonism, the call to rejoice and the call to tremble. How do you put these together? Here's how Piper put it. Christian hedonists can smell the flames of hell. Christian hedonists tremble still at the ledge from which we were snatched. In other words, our rejoicing in God never loses sight of the wrath of God against sin and rebellion. In other words, the invitation to rejoice in God and to serve Him does not give us a pass to forget about His wrath against rebellion. So rejoice with trembling. But the third part of this response is in verse 12. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way, for His wrath is kindled quickly. The language of kissing, the son here, refers to the kiss of the servant who acknowledges his master or his newly installed king. It's the kiss of homage. It's a picture of one's affections to, 
to his superior. Again, the original audience of this was kings. And to them, the invitation to kiss the newly installed king is an invitation to publicly acknowledge their new allegiance to the new king that God had installed. Your allegiance, a joyful and affectionate allegiance towards this new king of kings and lord of lords. But verse 12 ends with an urgency. Kiss the son, but don't delay. Because he can become angry. And his wrath can be kindled quickly. The time is running short. Don't delay. Don't tell yourself, I got time. Let me just enjoy the, the rebellion of this world. I'll do this thing when I get older. Well, friends, do not delay. These three verbs of, of serving, rejoicing, and publicly displaying your allegiance and affection to the king of kings can be all summarized in a final picture of the psalm, and that is taking refuge. This is the final verb of verse 12. This is how verse 12 closes with a picture of taking refuge in God's king. This is not another facet of the proper response to the king. It's rather the summary of what it means to serve this king, to rejoice in this king, and to kiss this king. And the psalm ends with an amazing statement. After telling us about the fury and the wrath of God, the fury of the wrath of the king that will come against all those who continue in their rebellion, this psalm ends with an amazing statement. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. What an amazing promise. The installed king that God presents to the rebellious kings of the nations is now the source of blessedness and refuge. Friends, the world may tell us that we are fools to turn to King Jesus, but God tells us that we are wise to do so, and we will be blessed to do so. May the Lord help us. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for being the God who provided your Son as the solution to our rebellion. We praise you that in him we can find refuge, safety, and blessedness if we turn to him by faith. Oh, gracious God, enable us by your Spirit to serve King Jesus, to find our rejoicing in him. Father, to express our allegiance, our affectionate allegiance to King Jesus all the days of our lives. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.